Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 1, and we left off in verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Let's pray together. Father, as we look at this section of scripture and it addresses how we're challenged in every side of our lives, and a lot of times it's beyond what we can take, beyond what we can bear, I'm sure that many of us feel that way, feel challenged. And God, may we experience the power of the resurrection, your hope and joy in our lives. Lord, also as we look at the the truth that your promises come into our lives through what you've done for us, Jesus. May that really set true in our hearts and our minds. May we be freed from legalism. May we be freed from a workspace mentality with you. May your spirit truly be welcome here as we, we've sang. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's going to write in this section that he's pressed beyond measure. Another way to express this is tested beyond our limits. Do you ever feel tested beyond your limits. I've got a theory about life that God has intentionally designed life in such a way to where we have to rely upon him. That's the whole goal of life, for us to see our need for salvation, for us to see our daily moment-to-moment need for the Lord. As we've seen the flooding that's taken care, taking place in the Carolinas, I don't know if you've been following uh, that story this week. They're calling it the thousand-year storm. And when I first read that, I was like, okay, they're really exaggerating things in the media now. You know, it's the thousand-year storm, but they got 40 uh, inches of rain in some parts of, of the Carolina. And that's a good visual image of something being tested beyond its limits. A lot of their dams have have broken, and and here's the limit of the dam, and now the water has come over that. We need to be in prayer for those that live in, in that area of the country. But I think it does provide a great visual image for us. This is a hymn that was written on this topic. It says, pressed out of measure, pressed beyond all length, pressed so intensely, seemingly beyond strength. Pressed in the body, pressed within the soul, Pressed in the mind till dark, darksome surges roll. God is my hope and God is my joy. He is the resurrection life I enjoy. Pressed by foes and pressure from all friends. Pressure on pressure till life nearly ends. Pressed into knowing none to help but God. Pressed into loving both the staff and the rod. Pressed into liberty where nothing clings pressed into faith for hard and hopeless things, pressed into life, a life in Christ the Lord, pressed into life, the life of Christ outpoured. One of the encouraging things to me of this passage is if the Apostle Paul felt that way, that it gives hope to us. Because sometimes when we're struggling and we're feeling pressed on every side, we go, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel this way? If I was just a little bit more spiritual or a little bit more committed to God, then I wouldn't feel beyond my own limits and beyond what I can take. So if Paul felt this way, I think we're going to feel this way as well. I want to read a few verses leading up to verse 8 because it's been a few weeks since we've been in this chapter. So join me in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it's for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffered. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as we are partakers of the suffering, so also you will be partakers of the consolation. Verse 8, where we begin our study tonight. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, or we were pressed beyond measure. Paul says, guys, I don't want you to be in this place where you're ignorant of what we went through when we were in Asia. Now, first, when we speak of Asia in this context, it's Asia Minor, which is currently Turkey. So if you're thinking of a map in your mind, it's modern-day Turkey. We don't know exactly the suffering that Paul is referring about. He could be referring to Acts chapter 19 when he was in Ephesus and the riot broke out. Also, in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he said this, I fought the wild beasts in Ephesus. And so some wonder, is that figurative or is that literal? Did he go in to the amphitheater and fight wild beasts? But those two snapshots of Paul's trial in Asia Minor were not the only things that he went through in his ministry. He had a difficult time in Ephesus, and the Corinthian church, which is in Greece, they'd heard about it. They understood it. They weren't ignorant of the trial that he went through. And what Paul is doing is he's laid out this truth that God is the God of all comfort. He's the Father of mercy. Now he's giving an example from his own life, and he's saying, this is how I've experienced God's comfort. And that's really a powerful illustration of God's comfort, isn't it? It's one thing to teach it in a setting like this, but it's another when you see it lived out in the life of a believer. When normally people would be falling apart, you find them enduring a storm because of the reality of who Christ is. So he says, Here, here's the difficulty that I was in in Asia. And I want you to meditate on this for a minute. He was burdened beyond measure. You, you can't begin to measure it. In the Greek, this talks about a ship that is so heavy, it's so loaded with, with burdens that it begins to sink. Once again, the news this week gives us a, a visual image of this, a cargo ship that went down in this hurricane in the Bermuda Triangle. 33 sailors have died. There was a point where it was so burdened that it began to sink in that storm. And Paul's saying, that's my life. I, I'm so burdened, I can't even begin to bear this storm that has been put upon me, this difficulty that's been placed. Now, I bet for some of you, this is perfect. You're wondering, man, I don't know if I'm going to make it to the Wednesday night study. It's a little cloudy. It's a little rainy. I'm tired. I'm wore out. I'm going through real challenge in my life. But my kids want to go, so I better go. You know, They're excited to be there, so I, I better come. Or these obstacles... But it's exactly what you hear tonight. You're like, man, I'm pressed. I turn to the left, I'm challenged. I turn to the right, I'm challenged. I look up, I'm challenged. I look down, I'm challenged. I don't know how much more I can handle. I can't take anymore. Well, I'm sure glad you came. This is the exact study for you. If you don't feel that way tonight, if you're in a season of blessing, just tuck this study in your back pocket because I guarantee you will be there. You will feel that way at certain moments in your life. And 
the degree of crushing or the degree of getting pressed, it changes. Sometimes it, it is at a 10 and 11. Sometimes it's at a five or a six. And sometimes it's a peaceful season. But this was a time that Paul says that he is pressed beyond measure. And it's above his strength. It's above what he can handle. I picture Paul being a pretty competent man. We, we get an idea, a biography of him in the scriptures. He seems to be a type A personality, a go-getter. In the natural sense, there was probably not a lot of things that he couldn't handle, but here he says, this particular trial is above my strength. I don't have enough strength for what I'm going through right now. And then this is what's really interesting at the end of this verse. He says, so that we despaired even of life. Those that are traveling with him and doing ministry with him, the trial in Asia gets so intense that they despair even of life. He's not the only one in scripture that's felt this way. Jeremiah, the great prophet, we referred to him two weeks ago as we ended our study. He felt the same way. He despaired of life. Elijah really gave his resignation to God and wanted to get away from everybody and die. He's doing his best to die. And God comes to him and says, here's some food for you that's going to sustain you for a long period. But that's not what Elijah wanted. He was so discouraged that he despaired of life. Job, as you read, the book of Job despaired in this same way. So some of the greats of scripture felt this way. So I think a lot of times we feel like, man, if I was connected to the Lord like I should, I wouldn't despair of life. But then we find that Paul is feeling this way. He's looking forward to eternity. In his heart of hearts, he's saying, God, I'm ready for heaven. You can take me right, right now. But please note, Paul didn't take these things into his own hands. He didn't commit suicide. He didn't contemplate suicide. This wasn't on the table for the Apostle Paul. Just like some of you are feeling pressed, I bet there's a few of you that are feeling suicidal, that are considering taking your own life, that you've already thought through a plan of how you would do that. If some of you are shocked that suicide would touch the people of God, it's a reality amongst this own church, amongst our group of believers, Rocky Mountain Calvary, people have taken their life because they've felt like they've come to, to an end. And Paul says, that's not an option for me. He understands that God's the giver of life. God's the one who takes away life. And I've got to tell you, if you think it's going to be easier for your loved ones, if you take your life, if you've ever been at a funeral of a suicide, I can tell you that's not the case. It's the most brutal on a family. It's the most brutal thing that you could do to the, to the ones that you love. And you hold on to the hope that God has for you, that he's got a plan for your days to come in the future. But Paul's feeling this way, and I think it gets us to a place where there is some comfort of going, man, I feel a little bit better because if Paul felt like this, I can identify with that as well. So this is a, an important thing to consider, is the comfort of God doesn't remove the pain. If the comfort of God removed the pain, then Paul wouldn't feel this way. That's not the promise of God's comfort. The promise of God's comfort is to meet us in the pain. And a lot of times we want God to take away the pain, and that's not necessarily the case, but he'll bring his comfort in the midst of that. In verse 9, there's a purpose in the pain. There's a purpose in the affliction. There's a, a purpose for what's taking place in Ephesus. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. You could give a theme to this epistle and its power in weakness, or put in other words, learning how to rely upon God. 
And Paul gives us more of his heart because his leadership is being questioned. It's more autobiographical. And he's saying, if there's any credential that I have, it's my weakness. It's the suffering that I've went through that's caused me to rely upon the Lord. And this comes off the pages of scripture here. He says, yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves. God engineered this trial in such a way to where we would realize we couldn't rely upon ourselves. And it's an official death sentence. You think of someone that's on death row. They've got the official death sentence. Someone who has been diagnosed as being terminally ill with cancer. They've got the death sentence. And he's saying, I have a death sentence that's been placed upon myself. And this is actually a really freeing place to be. And you're like, really? It doesn't sound very freeing. But once we really wholeheartedly believe that there's no good thing in us, do we believe that about ourselves? There's no good thing in us, that our heart is deceitfully wicked. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches, we can do nothing apart from him. And before we can get to the resurrection life, there has to be death. And it's the death of ourselves, it's the death of our abilities, it's the death of our good ideas, it's the death of our self-sufficiency. And what gets us to that place? Affliction, trial, difficulty. We become very aware, I can't get through this day. I can't get through this next five minutes. The only way I'm gonna get through this moment is the Lord. And, and Paul says, we had the sentence of death upon ourselves for the purpose that we wouldn't trust in ourselves, but we would trust in God. You know, I was a great, great parent before I had kids, you know? <laughs> I was so confident. You know, I, could, I could tell you how to parent. I had it all figured out. I was a junior high youth pastor, and I'd look at these junior high kids and their families, and I'd have some counsel for these families on how they should be able, be able to do it. Well, life has a way of humbling you pretty quickly after you have your first child, and they let you take this child home. Like, <laughs> really? You're just going to let me go home with this precious baby that's been entrusted to me? Really quickly, you start to realize how much that I'm in need of God's grace in every aspect of life, especially in the area of parenting. I knew so much more when I was 21. I really did. I knew so much more about ministry at 21 than I do now. I'd be in the school of ministry and I'd love to critique our pastors and how they should be able to do ministry and what's the right way to do it. I could see their flaws and what could be better in the church of God, but the longer that you have the opportunity to do something, the more you realize how lousy you are at it, right? That, that's the truth of it. And, and God's doing this to say, you know, don't trust in yourself. Is there a trial at work? Is that engineered by God? So he's saying, don't trust in yourself. Don't, don't trust in what you bring into to the table. Is there some trials in your marriage? And prior you thought, man, I can handle everything that marriage would throw at me. I, I've got this wrapped up. I've got this area of my life taken care of. And then God goes, okay, here's some challenge. Here's some difficulty in the midst of marriage. And all of a sudden go, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in someone else. I'm not trusting in this method. I'm not trusting in this marriage book. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And what transitions us is affliction. What transitions us is difficulty. And it's a good place to be. And then notice what Paul says. He says, in God who raises the dead, present tense. So there's a pattern here. Affliction, that then leads us to death. And then from death, it leads us to trust. 
and then ultimately resurrection life. Have you noticed that a lot of times resurrection life, the experience that God raises the dead, doesn't come unless death first occurs? C.S. Lewis put it this way, nothing that has not died will be resurrected, but death sets in motion the unstoppable process of the resurrection. You get to that point where you die. It's beyond measure. It's beyond what I can take. The marriage gets to a place of, God, I've done everything I, I can do. And then you start trusting in the Lord, the God who raises the dead. You get to that place with your own children where I've done everything I can possibly think to do. I've done everything that the books would, would say to do. Ah, I've died. And God, I'm trusting in you. You, you have the ability to bring to life something that was dead. This is not past tense. This is not looking back at the resurrection of Christ. It's present tense that Christ is risen and he's continue in the business of bringing back to life things that are dead. Do you believe that in your life? Do you believe that in your relationships? I believe we get to this place in serving God. A lot of times we try to serve God in our own strength. I'm going to go reach this neighbor, this family member. I'm going to serve inside of my church. I'm going to plant a church. I'm going to try to pastor a church. We do all of these things in our own strength. And then what happens? There's affliction. There's death. It leads us to the place of trust. And then as we trust the Lord, God brings in resurrection life. If you're in that place tonight where you're saying, I'm pressed beyond measure, I don't see a way of escape, I'm loaded down, and I'm sinking, you're exactly where God wants you to be. <laughs> I'm exactly where God wants me to be. He wants us to get to that place where we die to ourselves and we begin to trust. We put all of our weight upon the Lord. God, you've got to show up. This has got to be you and believing that he's the one who raises the dead. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul will write, he says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Christ also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. Did you catch that? Paul's saying, I'm always dying. God's always giving me over to difficult circumstances so that the power of the resurrection may be lived through my life. Verse 10 is one of my personal favorites. Underline it if you're a Bible underliner. If you're not a Bible underliner, you may consider it. Why not? Mark it up. Who delivered us from such a great death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Church, this is what we hold onto by faith in the midst of trial. That he has delivered us from such a great death. Past tense. What does that mean? Our salvation. He's delivered us from hell. You're not going to hell. Your sins are forgiven if you are in Christ Jesus. And Paul's saying, I'm thinking back to my own salvation when God saved me and God has delivered me from such a great of death. He's already provided the greatest victory. We look back at God's faithfulness, but then there's a confidence in the present that he does deliver us. God is working in your present situation. I want you to say this. God is working in my present situation. Okay, in the count of three. One, two, three. God is working in my present situation. Now say it like you mean it. God is working in my present situation. Now if you're like me, a lot of times I don't feel him working in my present situation. I don't see it. A lot of times I don't see it till I get well past it. Sometimes we won't even become aware of it until we get into eternity. And seeing, God, you were working, and I didn't see you working. But the scripture tells us, we lay hold of it by faith. He does deliver us. 
He is working in our present situation, but then also future, he will still deliver us. I want to know what this trial was in Ephesus. What was it? What were the details? God doesn't give it to us, but it was definitely ringing Paul's bell. And he says, I'm dying here, but I'm trusting. And I'm trusting that God will bring deliverance. This is the promise that God gives. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts I think towards you. Sometimes when we tell people God is thinking about you, they go, ooh, that's scary. What is God thinking towards me? Well, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you, personally you, a future and a hope. God spoke this promise to Israel when they were being taken captive into their sin, for their sin. It was a time of their rebellion. They were paying the price out of the promised land into Babylon. And God says, I still have a future for you. Maybe you feel that way. Man, I've sinned. I've blown it. I've brought these things upon myself. And God's promise is that he's got a plan, a future, and a hope for us. He will still deliver us, past, present, and future. Verse 11, that you also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons in our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Prayer works. Paul is saying to the church of Corinth, your prayer for us in this particular situation is working towards our deliverance. Now, this is the mystery of prayer. God is sovereign. God does what he pleases. He's going to deliver in his timing, but yet he listens and responds to the prayers of his people. Paul believed in the power of prayer because most of his epistles, he told the churches, I'm praying for you. But he also asked for prayer. A few of these places, in Ephesians 6, Paul says, pray also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Philippians 1.9, for I know that your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Saying, because you guys are praying for me, it's gonna result in my deliverance. Colossians 4 verse three, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Second Thessalonians 3.1, finally brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. So what do we learn from verse 11? If you're in trial, ask for prayer. That takes humility, doesn't it? But it's ultimately confidence in God. Have you ever been in an intense trial and all of a sudden, as you're going through that, you feel the presence of God? You feel God's joy and his peace? What took place? Someone was probably praying for you. Somebody took note. So take the time to ask if you're in the midst of affliction, but also if you see somebody else in affliction, pray for them because prayer works. Prayer is gonna result in God's working in and through their life. So I'm gonna take this advantage to let you know that I'm praying for you and I know you're praying for me and would you continue to pray for me and my family as well as the pastors that serve here? Because if the apostle Paul needed prayer, I need prayer like 50 times over, you know? So I thank you that you're praying for me. It's hard to understand. It's hard to quantify the results of prayer. But as God puts someone on your heart, if the Spirit of God begins to speak to your heart and life, say, take some time to pray for them. Fast and pray for them. That's the Spirit of God. How often does that just come from, from us? That's God. God's saying, they really need prayer. And take some time to lift them up in prayer. Prayer is effective. Prayer works. In verse 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves 
in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. This letter will make no sense if you don't understand the background that Paul has to try to reaffirm, reapprove his character and leadership, authority in the church of Corinth. People have come in and undermined him. So now he's saying, look at my suffering, but also look at my life. First, my life is with a clear conscience. And that goes throughout Paul's letters. He had a clear conscience before God and men. There was nothing that he was hiding. And then he says that we've conducted ourselves in the world with simplicity, which is also translated uprightness or holiness. It's not necessarily speaking to a simple life, though I do believe Paul's life was simple. He was a tent maker and devoted to, to the things of God, but it's speaking of uprightness and also with godly sincerity. And the Greek word for godly sincerity means without wax. And you're saying, well, that's kind of weird. It's because as they would make clay pots, if there was a crack in, in the pot, then they would put wax on the pot and not fix it correctly, then go ahead and paint it and sell it as this unblemished pot. And so what Paul's saying here is, is you see what you get. I'm a man of integrity. I'm, I'm walking in integrity before you. Acts 18 tells us that Paul spent 18 months with the church of Corinth. That's a long time in Paul's ministry. He was kind of flashing the pan. He'd come, start a church, and he'd leave. But he was with Corinth for 18 months, and these guys had seen him up close and personal. And he's reminding them of the way that he lived his life. And he says, not with fleshly wisdom, they preached Christ and the wisdom of Christ through God's grace. It was an expression of God's grace abundantly towards the church of Corinth. Verse 13, for we are not writing other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I will trust you will understand even to the end. Paul's saying there's no secret message here. What you read, this is exactly what you get, and I hope you understand it. As also you have understood us in part that we are your boast as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, you probably only understand a portion of what I'm saying, but please understand that you're my boast in the day of Christ, and I'm your boast in the day of Christ. This is speaking of the second coming of Christ. So this is the idea here. We're journeying together as believers. We're running this race as believers. We're encouraging one another then when Christ returns, it's going to be our boast. Oh, Lord, look at my brother in Christ. Look at my sister in Christ. God, thank you so much that you allowed me to be a blessing to them. You allowed me to be an encouragement to them. Paul would also refer to believers as his crown in this day, that, that when he's there before the throne room of God, his crown is to see other believers be there with him. So it's this beautiful picture of how we're encouraging each other, Maybe some of you did the run for revolution and you decided to run it with someone else and you finishing together was your boast. That, that was your boast. It wasn't just that you finished, it's that you finished with someone else. But a lot of times our boast is that I left you in the dust, right? That, that's what we boast about. You know, my time was better than your time and that type of thing. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is we finished together. Verse 15 and in this confidence, I intend to come to you before that you might have a second benefit. So, so Paul's saying, I intended to come and visit you again to pass by you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way 
to Judah. Do you see how Paul sees relationship and fellowship and community with other believers? He knows that he's going to be an encouragement, but he's also going to be encouraged. And that's the way it is when we hang out with believers, is that we give encouragement and we receive encouragement. Verse 17, therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? Or the things I planned, do I plan according to the flesh? that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no. So when, when Paul's saying, when I made these plans, was it flippant or was it serious? Yeah, I took it serious. I, I prayed it through. But Paul also realizes that God changes plans. Isn't that true? We're instructed in Scripture to put our plans in the hands of God because our lives are but a vapor. Who knows what a day is going to bring? And Paul's introducing to them that his plans did change, saying, I want you to know my heart. I was serious about coming to you. But as God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. So as Paul was unable to make this original itinerary, he points them back to the character of God. And he's saying, even though I wasn't able to make this particular trip, I was faithful in my word because I pointed you to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who ultimately, his yes is yes and his no is no. Now this little discussion that Paul has about not being able to come to Macedonia and pointing people to the character of God, I think brings us into one of the most paramount freeing truths in the New Testament. And I think you're going to be blessed that you came tonight, and if you can lay hold of this or be reminded of this, I think it's going to bless your evening and really transform your life. In verse 20, it says, for all of the promises of God are in him, are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through Jesus. So all of the promises of God, there's roughly 3,000 promises of God in the scripture. So all of those promises are in Jesus. They're fulfilled in Jesus Christ and are yes, and in him, amen, which means so be it to the glory of God through Jesus. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the way they related to God was an if-then relationship. And what I mean by that is the law reads this way. If you do this, then you'll receive this. If you obey, there's blessing. But if you disobey, there's cursing. Even to the point where God had the children of Israel read the law on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Mount Gerizim was the mount of blessing, and Mount Ebal was the mount of cursing. So the, the message is clear. Which mountain do you want to live on? Do you want to live on the mountain of blessing or the mountain of cursing. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. So all of the promises in the Old Testament were on you. That was the message of the Old Covenant. That's encouraging. If you obey, you'll be blessed. You'll receive the promise. But if you disobey, you're cursed. You're going to experience the consequences of your sin. So how did that work out for Israel in the Old Testament? Not so well. Because they disobeyed. They fell short. The best of them fell short. Even Moses didn't get to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. But there's a third mountain that I'm so thankful for. Not just Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Do you know what it is? It's the Mount of Calvary, where Christ was crucified, where he cried out, it is finished. Te telestai, paid in full. And as he paid the price, as he died, it's his performance, it's his perfection, it's his holiness 
then all of the promises of God flow through the finished work of Jesus Christ. How do we know that we're forgiven? It's the promise of God based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. We believe it and we receive it, but it's not based on our performance. Isn't that freeing? And a lot of times we carry a heavy legalistic mentality in our relationship with God. We want to live on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Why? Because it lends itself to pride. We can go, you know what? I've really been obeying, so I deserve to be blessed by God. I'm a little bit better than the rest of those slackers, you know? And they would just get their act together like me. Their life would be blessed. And it leaves a lot of room in the equation for us to be glorified. But when we're blessed in this way, in verse 20, notice it's to the glory of God through Jesus because it's his faithfulness, it's his performance, it's his mercy. So this is where I believe it can be transformational, is you don't come to God and go, God, well, I've been doing really good at my devotions. Please, would you bless me? And we very rarely say that to God, but yet we believe it, don't we? If I could somehow manage to read the Bible in one year, then maybe God would really bless me. God, I came on Wednesday night. There's a lot of people that come here on Saturday or Sunday, but I don't see them on Wednesday night. I deserve an extra cookie from you tonight, God. You know, <laughs> please notice that, that I'm here on Wednesday night. God's not a workspace God. And if that's our relationship with the Lord, current, present tense, we're always just going to be receiving these little crumbs. It's always just going to be whatever we can muster up by our performance. But then the flip side's true, isn't it? We're going to fail. We're going to fall short. We didn't read our Bible like we should. We, we took a Wednesday night off and even watched a football game that we had pre-recorded. And we just didn't feel like, feel like coming. And, and all of a sudden, we're like, oh, man, God can't bless me this week. I didn't go to Wednesday night Bible study. I didn't do my devotions this morning. God, God doesn't love me. I, I didn't put my tithe check in, in the box. God, God doesn't, doesn't love me. And now we've fallen either to pride or to condemnation. So here's what we do instead is, God, thank you that you gave your son and all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And would you give me a greater knowledge of you based on your grace, based on what you have done? God, would you bless my marriage not by what I bring to the table, but by what you've provided at the communion table, your broken body and your shed blood. God, would you bless this church, not based on our prayer life, not based on how much we give, not based on how hard we study, but because of your son. And all of a sudden, we begin to walk in the salvation that we've received. We were walking in the grace that we have received, that brokenness before the Lord. And then looking at his goodness and going, Lord, would you work based on this truth that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. It's already been paid for. And I think God is waiting for believers to trust in the work of his son instead of trusting in themselves. Try it out and see what happens. Be poor in spirit and put faith in what Christ has done instead of putting faith in what we have done. It's really freeing. It's really life-giving. Verse 21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us is God. He said, God's the one who's established us with the church of Corinth, and God is the one who anoints. That's encouraging to know. God's the one who establishes you, and God's the one who anoints you. Verse 22, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In Paul's day, in Christ's day, what they would do is someone would write a letter 
If they were a real important person, then they would fold it up and they would put their official seal on it. If they were a king, they'd put that king's seal and it was proof of ownership. It was also protection. It's like, if this wasn't intended for you, don't open up this letter. And through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is God, that lives inside of us as believers, God has sealed you. What's the message of being sealed? You belong to God. You're the Lord's. He's put his seal upon you. And also, God's protection. Don't mess with my son. Don't mess with my daughter. They have the Holy Spirit. You're messing with the temple of the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful thing God has given to us. Also, the Spirit is a guarantee. The word guarantee is is equal to earnest money if you're trying to buy a house. You put down the down payment, which obligates the payer to make further payments. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment of God's promise of his finished work in our lives. How do we know that he's going to be faithful to complete the good work that he started in us? Because he's made the guarantee. He's put the Holy Spirit in us. He's put the Holy Spirit in you and in me. And it's right for us to think of our own lives that way, but also to think of other believers that way. God is going to finish the good work that he started in them. There's no question. The Spirit is our guarantee. Verse 23, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to you, that to spare you, I come no more to Corinth. Can I read that again? Because I slaughtered that. (laughs) Let me try that again. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. What in the world does that mean? I think it's answered in chapter two. If you look in the first four verses of chapter two, you can read ahead a little bit. Paul's saying, I've got a lot of hard things to deal with you about, and I'd rather deal with it in this letter so that when I come, it's not another bummer visit. It's not another grievous visit. We need to get our relationship right before I come to visit. It'd be if something was at odds with a friend, and instead of just showing up and pretending like everything was good, send an email. Let's work this out in email before I come to you in person. And that's what Paul's expressing in verse 23. Verse 24, for me, has formed a philosophy and ministry here at RMC, not that we would have dominion over your faith, but are all fellow workers for your joy. For by faith you stand, but are fellow workers for your joy. Paul's saying, my heart was never to have dominion over you, to have dominion over your faith, but I simply want to be a helper of your joy. And that's our heart. That's our our desire. And there has been a, a dominion movement that's in churches where sometimes leadership takes too much ownership of God's people's lives. For example, someone says, well, I want to get married. Well, I can only get married if my pastoral staff approves. You know, and so if they say, well, you can marry this person, then you can marry this person. It's a good idea to, to talk to your pastors and get some counsel But ultimately, that's between you and the Lord if you're both believers and you're not living in in sexual sin. And a spiritual leader isn't the one who's going to live with that decision. That's the most grown-up decision that you're ever going to make. And you're choosing who you're going to marry and you need to pray through it. And what does the scripture say about it? But it's not like you have to get, you know, pastoral permission to be able to marry this person as long as they're both believers, as long as you're not living in sexual immorality. It's gotten to the point where some people 
have come to these type of churches and said, well, should I buy this house or should I buy that house? How do I know which house you should buy? I had a hard enough time figuring that out for myself. Why don't you pray about it? That's something that God wants you to, well, should I get this car? And I need pastoral approval. And all of a sudden there's all this control that pastors have in people's lives. And that's not what God intended. Paul says, I refuse to do this. I'm not gonna have dominion over your faith. I simply want to be a helper of your joy. We had a, a newcomer's uh, lunch on Sunday, and a lady was asking, you know, I, I'm really blessed to come at RMC at this, this time of the week, and, but I'm still going to this church on another night of the week, and is that okay? You know, can, can I do that? And this verse came to mind. Yeah, by all means, double dip. It's okay. And we want to... <laughs> We, we want to be a, a helper of your joy. You know, if you're coming here and you're getting blessed and you're going somewhere else and being blessed and I encouraged her, you, you should identify that some place is your home church that you're going to be accountable to because we all need that in case church discipline needs to be applied to our lives. But by all means, you know, go to, go to both and, and be blessed. And, and that's the heart of our church. And we don't do it perfectly, but we want to be helpers of people's joy. And how does that take place? How does Paul be a helper of the church of Corinth's joy by pointing them to Christ and encouraging them to walk with Christ? And that's the truth that we should have for one another as believers. How do we help one another have joy? Well, true joy is found in Jesus. So let's point one another to Jesus Christ. So I think there's two takeaways, two primary takeaways from this section of scripture, and they're both very, very encouraging. And the first is, if you're pressed beyond measure, there's not something wrong with you. Paul went through it as well. A lot of the other greats went through it in scripture, but it's definitely designed by God. And that's the hard part. Oh God, you have allowed this. You have engineered this. This is your will for my life in this season. And to take verse nine and verse 10 and make it your own. Okay, I have the sentence of death in myself. I've realized through this affliction, I cannot get through this life on my own. And I'm gonna trust, not in myself, I'm trusting in God who's able to raise the dead. Look at God's faithfulness in the past, the present, hold on in the future. And if that's what you get out of the season of crushing, it was worth it. Remember Jacob in the Old Testament? He was a self-made man from the womb, no joke. He had a twin brother named Harry. Esau literally means Harry. Jacob was the, the youngest, and he's grabbing for his brother's heel at birth to try to be the firstborn. There's never been such a self-made man. And he lived his life always trying to manipulate. If I just do this and engineer this way and do this and do that way, and God kept allowing him to reap what he would sow in the way that he would try to manipulate people and then later in life, here he is by himself. God had it set up. Here comes the angel of the Lord to wrestle with Jacob. And he wrestled and he wrestled and he wrestled and he wouldn't let go. And he asked for a blessing and he got blessed when God changed his name from Jacob, which means heel catcher, manipulator, to Israel, which means governed by God. He had the sentence of death in himself so that he wouldn't trust in himself. And it took a lifetime. It wasn't until he was older in his years. And then Hebrews tells us that he leaned upon his staff and he worshiped. He came to find that his weakness was his greatest blessing. He walked the rest of his life with a limp because the angel of the Lord had dislocated his hip. And that's maybe exactly what God's doing in our lives. Okay, 
here's the pain, here's the hurt, so that we would not trust ourselves, but we would be governed by God. We would let God take control. So that's the first takeaway in affliction. And then the second takeaway is this, that all the promises of God are in Christ. Yes and amen. I'm broken. I fall short, but it doesn't affect the promises of God in my life. And you're saying, well, that sounds a little too easy. Are you teaching sinful living? Not at all. Because when we start to realize this, to me, nothing motivates me more towards holiness. Because no longer is it a responsibility. No longer am I trying to earn a paycheck from God, earn cookies from God. The promises of God are flowing in my life based upon who Jesus is, and I simply get to respond. God, I want to be close to you. God, I want to surrender my life to you. So Father, we pray you take this truth and apply it deep in our hearts and lives tonight. Father, I pray for those that are in that place of crushing to some degree. They're being pressed on every side. Lord, would you minister to their hearts? Lord, we accept your truth that we do have the sentence of death in ourselves. We trust you, the God who raises the dead. Lord, would you allow us to be like Jacob, to be broken before you, to be governed by you? Would you bring your comfort? Would you bring your peace to those that are suffering? And Lord, help us to sink our spiritual teeth in this truth that all of the promises are completed in Christ. They're all consuming in Christ. And forgive us for trying to earn your blessing, earn your promises. And we want to receive them by grace and through faith. Would you bless this time of communion? In Jesus' name, amen.